0: Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles.
1: And I am Dr. Rebecca L. Salois, And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Peru College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures.
0: We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond.
1: Welcome to Latinx Visions.
0: Bienvenidos, bienvenidas, bienvenides.
1: Welcome to our Season 4 finale episode. Today, we're going to be sharing a conversation that we had with writer, researcher, BLS colleague, and PhD candidate, Joseph Cáceres. But before we get into that, we're going to provide a little background on who he is and his work, but we're also going to take the time to define what an archive is.
0: During the conversation, we asked Joseph about his experiences with archives and archival research, specifically as it relates to his current work. Finally, we'll wrap up with a brief discussion on our own experiences with archives and some recommendations for archives we have worked with in the past.
1: Joseph Casares is a queer Puerto Rican writer from the South Bronx. His work has been published in Slice, Cosmonauts Avenue, Cura, and Emerge 2019 Lambda Fellows Anthology. An alumnus of the Yale Writers' Workshop, Joseph is also the recipient of the Bronx Council of the Arts, Bronx Recognizes Its Own, or BRIO, grant for fiction, and Lambda Literary Writers' Residency for Emerging LGBTQ Voices.
0: He's an English PhD candidate at the CUNY Graduate Center where he studies queer US American artists of African and Caribbean descent. Joseph has received three lost-and-found CUNY Poetics Document Initiative archival research grants. CUNY's Archival Research in African American and African Diaspora Studies Awards, the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics Dissertation Award, and the Black Race and Ethnic Studies Doctoral Fellowship for his work with the New and Poets Cafe Founders Archive Project.
1: He, along with Lois-Elaine Griffith, one of the last surviving founders of the New Yorican Poets Café, co-edited an anthology memorializing the life and work of the Café's founder, Miguel Algarín, Memorias de Miguel, The Hard Work of Love, which was published by NYU's Hemispheric Institute in 2022. Joseph is currently working on several projects revolving around the unpublished works of the New Yorican Poet Café's queer founders. So, uh, again, before we get to the interview, we want to talk about what an archive is. So, Frojo, tell us, what is an archive?
0: Yeah, So I'm going to uh, bring a very like relevant uh, definition by French philosopher Jacques Derrida uh, from his book Archive Fever. Yeah, This is a seminal work in archival studies that explore the archive concept as a cultural and political phenomenon. The following are the three main arguments put forward by Derrida in his work. The first point or argument is that the archive is not a neutral repository of historical records but a constructed and selective collection of documents that reflect the interests and biases of those who create and maintain it, los arcontes. Derrida argues that archives are consistently imbued with power relations and that archiving itself is a political act that shapes our understanding of the past.
1: In his second point, Derrida refers to the idea that archives are always incomplete and fragmented and that documents they contain are always subject to interpretation and reinterpretation. Derrida argues that the archive is haunted by the possibility of what it has excluded or forgotten and that this ghostly presence shapes our understanding of the past. The archive is also subject to what Derrida calls archive fever, right? This is the third point a term that refers to the desire to accumulate and preserve documents for posterity. Derrida argues that this desire is driven by a fear of mortality and a need for immortality and that it leads to a fetishization of the archive as a repository of knowledge and power. However, he also suggests that this desire for the archive is essential to our understanding of history and culture and is a critical element of our human experience.
0: Of course, these descriptions are reductive. There's a lot more to unpack and discuss from Derrida's work. For example, his engagement with Sigmund Freud's psychoanalysis. But these are some general thoughts that can help us contextualize our interview with Joseph.
1: Uh, let's talk specifically about Latine archives, though. How? How can we dig into that a little bit?
0: So a little bit on the Latina archives. Yeah, during the civil rights movement in the 1960s and 1970s, Latino, Latina, Latina activists began to recognize the importance of preserving their history and culture. The lack of representation of Latino in mainstream archives and the historical exclusion of their voices from from dominant narratives sparked a movement to create Latino-specific archives and uh, ethnic studies uh, program as well. Mm -hmm. One of the first and most significant Latino archives was the Chicano Research Collection established in 1969 at Arizona State University. The Chicano Research Collection was created to preserve the history and culture of Mexican Americans, a group that had been largely excluded from mainstream archives.
1: The establishment of the Chicano Research Collection inspired other Latina activists to create similar archives across the country, including the National Hispanic Cultural Center Archives in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the Latino Cultural Center Archives in Dallas, Texas. In addition to the emergence of Latino archives on the West Coast, there was a growing movement to establish Puerto Rican archives on the East Coast during the Civil Rights era.
0: Yeah, one of the most significant Puerto Rican archives established during this time was the Centro de Estudios Puerto Riqueños, Center for Puerto Rican Studies, which was founded in 1973 at Hunter College in New York City. The center was created to address the lack of research on the Puerto Rican experience and to promote the study of Puerto Rican history, culture, and politics. El Centro de Estudios Puerto Ricanos not only collect and preserve materials related to Puerto Rican history and culture, but also support research on the Puerto Rican experience and disseminate information through publication and educational programming.
1: I think that completes our mention of a CUNY school in every episode this season. (laughs) These archives not only provided a platform for Latinas to document their own history and culture, but also served as a means of challenging dominant narratives and representations of Latinos in U.S. American history. They provided a space for community members to engage with and contribute to the preservation of their own cultural heritage, and in doing so, helped to shape a more accurate and inclusive historical record of the Latina experience in the United States. So with that background information, we're now going to lead you into our interview and conversation with Joseph. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas, bienvenides. I'm stealing your line this week, Rojo. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are welcoming Joseph Casares here to talk to us about archives and archival research and all of that stuff. So welcome, Joseph.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, welcome, Joseph. It's really great to be in conversation with you. We have been in uh, this year. We have been in a couple of panels together, but this is a great opportunity to to expand on many of the things that we have, like covering the panels and beyond, of course. Yes. Yeah, uh, we would like to start the conversation with... Uh, Question: direct question about archives and how do you understand them. So the question is, what is your definition of an archive and how can archives serve as a community
2: exploration tool? Oh, that's all. well, I guess I'll start with the first part. <laughs> <laughs> we um, only
1: do loaded questions here.
2: <laughs> um, so I guess for me, an archive is like a repository of information. And I want to say with that one, because it's also... Um, a collection of documents materials etc but I like the term repository of information because I like to think of archives not only as ephemera documents um, but also community people and their work poetry, art, thinking about community exploration so I guess I could be real specific since I'm working with the New Eureka Poets Cafe Founders Archive Project (laughs) uh, which was started by one of the last surviving founders of the New Eureka Poets Cafe, Lois Elaine Griffith. Um, She is an Afro Caribbean woman at a Boricua space Um, and uh, she has been erased because I think because of her background Um, but she's been so central to the cafe it's aesthetic and um, has been collecting material for the archive that their specific archive since 1973-74 and so just working with her and seeing her Archive and seeing it expand in the last, just like the recent few months, it has expanded from about 50 boxes to I think about 200 to 300 boxes of material. What is in those boxes is very indicative of the cultural work that Lois and the cafe and the people involved with the cafe were doing within the community. Um, and not just specifically Loisada, but the community of, of the diaspora at large I'm currently working on three Lost and Found issues. Um, Lost and Found is the CUNY uh, Poetics Initiative document. I think I said the Documents right. Initiative. A documents yeah, yeah, yeah. Initiative. Um, and I'm doing three Lois and Founds on Lois's archive. Well, actually, no. I'm doing one issue on her archive. The first issue is called Speaking from the Underground, which is looking at Lois's poetics. Uh, another issue is Faces in the Dark, I think, and that's looking at her visual artwork. And the last one is Home, and is looking at her as an archivist and a cultural worker. Um, and then looking in through these three... Um, Working on these three lost and founds and working with Lois in the last two years plus, seeing those connections between the cafe and, like, Dia which is not in the Lower East Side, uh, but is a cultural art space in El Barrio in Spanish Harlem. Uh, where else was were we looking at? Um, but also looking at like Lois's work with people from the Village Voice, uh, looking at her work with Tony Gleaton, who's a photographer who was documenting stuff in the well, documenting the Black experience in the Midwest, the West, and Central and South America, um, and expanding really what a community might mean locally and expanding nationally and then globally.
1: One of the things that you mentioned was uh, the erasure of someone like Lois in terms of her archives. Are there any other struggles that you've faced when seeking to explore the archives, hers in particular or just in general, either way?
2: I think, well, Lois has been really open (laughs) with me in sharing her archive. Um, But I think in terms of thinking about Women in general in these spaces, um, There's Lois has shared, and I won't share what she's shared with me because it's personal, but I can talk about it in general, Mm -hmm. um, of some people she knew who were in other parties like the Black Panthers parties, for example, and these women were physically assaulted, sexually assaulted, and the idea was we must push the race we must move forward with the movement and so be quiet. So it happened to you, people knew it, but don't say anything because we need to progress during the civil rights movement. So there's a lot of that, that undergirds a lot of these movements. And I think now, um, because of Me Too, but just recently women are, um, specifically these stories are coming out and resurfacing. Um, and Lois is, is at this moment taking advantage of that um, moment, in the history to feel free to say what wasn't said before. And I think this, for me, was really interesting for Lois. Um, I think Miguel wrote something in one of the anthologies, Miguel getting, that Lois was a spirit of the cafe. And I think of like a spirit as a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> and, but she was so central and was moving with all these other men. And I think that is for her the having, to kind of answer your question a little deeper, I guess, or thinking of uh, Lois having um, this being so long, it's taking so long for Lois to get to this moment of recognition, which slowly we're getting there. But, but it, I, I often think and we often have conversations if she was a man. Right, her archive would have been sold. She would be, there would be all these documents on her. There would be scholarship on her, et cetera. Um, so I think in that term of access to her as a person, I think like misogyny and misogynoir is, again, this is how I think and how I feel working with her. Um, one of the obstacles mm-hmm. that we have to face yeah. in getting her just seen and visible
1: Uh, It sounds like there's also some, like, emotional struggles that you have to deal with in processing some of this information that you're uncovering as well, uh, either from Lois and her stories or from the documentation itself, right? Um, And and so you're talking about, you know, sort of a way to unerase Lois. I don't know. Um, But... Beyond her or even maybe a little bit more about her, how do you think that archives can be in the service of preserving and amplifying the voices and the histories of marginalized communities in New York City? Um, our 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 podcast season is centered around New York City this year, but particularly also those that intersect with the New York and Poets Cafe. So, you know, if you want to talk more about Lois, that's great. <laughs> if there's anything else.
2: One of the things Lois and I always talk about is um, where do you start? Uh, Like Lois uh, just had an event like Caridad de la Luz, la Bruja, uh, who is the current director of the cafe. She had an event this past Wednesday uh, that celebrated Lois along with Iris Morales and Rina Valentin. Um, And Lois is something that just struck me. She's like, where do you start? Where do you begin? And that's a good way of thinking of like telling a story about us as in the diaspora and telling the story of the Americas. <laughs> um, and starting with, I guess, starting with Lois, for me, is a shift in thinking about the diaspora and thinking of well, the New Yorkian diaspora. I'll take that back. Thinking about the New Yorkian Poets Cafe specifically and how we think about it as being this male-dominated space and very uh, Latinx when, yes, the aesthetic is Boricua, um, but the people who are involved in it everyone was involved in it you had uh, italian american jewish american black american afro-caribbean uh chicano asian americans you name it everyone was involved um and i think that keeping the central thought a central line of but the boricua aesthetic um doesn't go away when we think and talk about the people who were involved in doing this work because they're not trying to change the aesthetic they're enlightening it, um, they're pushing it, and I just think that's just it enriches it. And I think thinking about how artists, and spe- uh, specifically, are always in communion with each other, mm. um, and doing work that is uh, resisting kinds of like colonial narratives, etc. And that's just really, to me, a joy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and things and and and. In terms of thinking about what we do look at in the archive, what we do find, because it it can be traumatic, a little heart disheartening, but when you think about the work that these people did and the work that uh, was collected by people like Lois, um, and and in the work I'm doing right now, um, I'm also finding that Lois isn't the only one collecting (laughs) stuff. So there's other people within the, just in Loisada in general, but also not just in Loisada, in the diasporic, diasporican community have been holding onto their papers and preserving a history that, you know, archives are not made. Archive with a capital capital A (laughs) is, it's meant to, you know, control history in a language but specifically a narrative that justifies who is considered a human being, a citizen, Mm. et cetera. And these counter narratives that are being reproduced through this preservation of these smaller, I don't wanna say smaller, yeah, smaller capital, lowercase a archives are doing that work of of the erasures.
1: There's something to be said about balancing out the contents of Archive through this, you know, as you said, Archive capital A, Archive lowercase a, so that you get a fuller picture of the histories, yeah?
0: Yeah, thinking uh, about, like, the different collectors, yeah, and the different people creating this, like, Lowercase uh, archives. Yeah, how can the centering Donny Poets cafe uh, provide a more comprehensive understanding of the Lower East Side and Puerto Rican diasporic spaces in New York?
2: I don't. I I know you mean, but I think like I want to stay with censoring it.
0: Tell us about that.
2: I yeah. want. <laughs> I want to censor it because I think. I think just. I think if we think about what the founders and the people who were involved with the cafe were doing, but on any of these spaces, it's just so interesting. The other day I was walking through Loisada and I walked from the Graduate Center there, which is a pretty far work, walk, but it, it was like a total cultural shift. Like the landscape changed for me. And then, then I saw something different. And then you see everyone's there. There's African Americans, there's Black, there's, like, every cultural you name is there. and And there are neighborhoods in New York City that are like that. But I guess when you're walking from like Midtown, (laughs) (laughs) corporateized America, and then you walk into a neighborhood that has all this history of just community organization. It just felt like a different world I had walked into. And then I was going to this event at White Box, uh, which is an art gallery on, um, I think it's at... East 3rd in Houston, Avenue B. Um, and it was a exhibition of work from Thayer Boricua. And just sitting in that space, and, and they, actually Lois was there to do a reading a, a, along with Papaletto. Melendez um, was there as well, the other surviving founder of the cafe. And just listening to the people who were involved, who are still alive, thank God, um, talk about... What they were doing and what they had done as cultural work in the beginnings, of the 70s and the 80s, and realizing, like, holy shit, mm-hmm. <laughs> this neighborhood has a very strong grassroots history and I guess through line that has not diminished uh, in that sense. But so to answer the question about decentering, I want to kind of like push back because when we look at it in that lens and see how these, like, the cafe is not. The, a central place it's like a point on a map that connects it with like White Box um there's what else is uh Charas, uh Boricua you can think of like uh those uh thinking about the archive of the cafe, specifically because Lois is known as the keeper of the New and Poets Cafe archive, and looking through her papers, seeing that the, just these global, local, national, but also global connections to it, I think then, I guess at some point to kind of push back, but also just to make this kind of complicated, contradictory, and discursive. In <laughs> <laughs> um, centering it, you wind up decentering. it. <laughs> In a sense, because then you see that it wasn't the only place doing this work. It was in communion with other spaces. It's uh, I think um, I'm not going to remember his name, but Miguel Algarin went to school, I believe, with uh, a a Japanese man. um, And he would I think he had sent Miguel and a few of them over to Japan uh, to do like some a talk or like this cultural thing to read the poetry. Long story short, this man translated Miguel's Time Is Now Jos ja Timpo into Japanese. So there's actually like a book where it's like cause uh Miguel Algen's book is one side is in English, the other side is translated into Spanish, and this man then translated it into Japanese. And he would um give the cafe about a thousand, two thousand dollars a year for them to set up for um a grant for someone. They could they could have a competition, a poet, an artist, whatever. To have that money and just have two thousand dollars, but thinking in that sense, like there are these other actors that are are engaged within these, these um that are engaged within the cafe, but also like everybody else, everyone's working with each other. So in a sense, like it's decentered, wearing <laughs> <laughs> it, but also putting it in conversation with uh, the other sites of uh, cultural sites that are doing all this work within their specific communities. Um, I, 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 I guess that when I think about the cafe, I often think like everyone's doing something and they're always like, that's like a jumping point I think it's really
0: interesting also to think about uh, the lower side, low Side, also like uh, literally from the streets. And for example, we can think about someone like Jorge Brandon and Coco que habla and his constant walk. Yeah, with, uh, with El Carrito, mm-hmm. yeah, and performing poetry literally in the corners, mm-hmm. right? We can think uh, uh, about, like, Algarin's apartment and mm-hmm. everything that happened there. And we can think also about uh, uh, thinking about Papoleto mm-hmm. and what he's, like, recently proposing, like, the fire skate uh, uh, poetics, mm-hmm. yeah, and the rooftop poetics that also, like, uh, are very particular to pinheiro and others, right? So, there's also, like, this idea that what is actually happening beyond the institution mm-hmm. is as important, right, yeah. As, as, yeah, as, this as this center, right?
2: Yeah, like, cause it's supposed to be from the street to the stage. But I think we should. You're right. Thinking a little more about the actual street.
0: <laughs> yeah, there, there's oh. a lot of activity happening on the, the street. street, directly <laughs> on the streets. Yeah. Uh, I'm also thinking about a recent the uh, memo- recent uh, memorial uh, for Steve Cannon and mm-hmm. uh, the carnival that was like uh, performed directly also on, on the the yeah. streets. Yeah. So it's yeah it. Uh, it we're talking
2: about poetics that are mm-hmm. that take seriously the yeah. street. Um, and also thinking about like um, the golden age, as Lois said, of the cafe is probably, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and that idea of the street to the stage, I think it's getting a little revival now. Um, what the was going on but the cafe is gonna shut down for two years so (laughs) for renovations so that'd be interesting to see and then there was a pandemic so and then there's all the gentrification going on um so thinking about spaces where people can actually from the street to the stage um Mm -hmm. but i don't know i Uh, we have a
0: question yeah we were interested in your views about gentrification yeah because we have been like uh, celebrating that cultural like vibrancy of Loisada but we have to also uh, acknowledge like the stream uh, gentrification in the area and then this this stream gentrification is not new it's something that has been happening for decades now Uh, but it's definitely uh, uh, in a a very like uh, dangerous moment because it implies the the erasure of that history yeah Uh, so how these like, neighborhood dynamics yeah, are like affecting, impacting the, the cultural context that led to the creation of these different spaces, but definitely also to the New York and Poets Café and, and to the streets poetics that we have been talking about.
2: Yeah, so thinking about what Miguel Algarín said in the opening poem of Love is Hard Work and thinking about um, poetry as a site of memorialization, I, I like to think about gentrification, specifically to Loisada and what Miguel wrote in that poem, and thinking about the landscape as the site of memory. And thinking about, although this place will be gone, um, poetry will have to be the place where we have to hold our memories. Um, So thinking again, as poetry as archives, um, I think that's one way to kind of resist it. I've been listening like some like important like
0: uh, uh, approaches lenses that you are have been like uh, bringing and and um, putting forth uh, in a specific yeah the. To think your uh, work, thinking about Boricua poetics through a larger framework of Caribbean poetics, and definitely uh, thinking about uh, Boricua poetics and New Yorkian poetics through, uh, also through the larger frame of blackness. Yeah, if we can talk about uh, about that, uh, how. That That is one of your concern and your interests mm-hmm. and how you're, like, uh, working with those aspects, yeah? Uh, yeah,
2: I think so, because I'm, I've switched my dissertation three times. <laughs> 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 I'm now focusing on Lois's uh, poetics, her visual artwork and her cultural work. Um, but just thinking of, like, I know we want to descend to the cafe, but coming back to the cafe and thinking about who's who is there and thinking about the uh New Rican arts movement being in concert with the black arts movement and thinking about it someone, a figure like Amiri Baraka, who basically at Tracy Morris had a, the poet Tracy Morris had a talk at the Graduate Center last Thursday. And I was sharing with her that Lois is actually going to be at Harlem stage next week, May 19th, May 20th, for the black arts movement talk. And she's going to be on a panel. And Lois, has been thinking about, part of the reason, let me jump back, one part of the reason Lois really started the the um, New Yorican Poets Cafe Founders Archive Project was she was invited to go to a talk about poetics in the Lower East Side. And she sat through it, they gave her a book, she looked through the book, she was like, okay. She went to the index, she saw the New European, um and there was only two pages, and in those pages was two sentences, um, and it was Bob Holman, who's also He's a white man, but he's also very important to the cafe, but he was the one who was central to that discussion about the cafe. And so she was very upset, and she said... This is interesting because you have figures like Allen Ginsberg who's coming and the Beats are coming to the cafe to do their work. You had Amiri Baraka and Ishmael Reed. She's like no one is publishing or producing Ishmael Reed's um and Amiri Baraka, specifically Amiri Baraka's plays except for at the cafe. So and then I was sharing with Tracy Morris last week. I was like, "Oh, they invited Lois to be on this panel on Black Arts and Lois is really excited about that." And Tracy Morris shared with me, "Right, like cuz you know, Amiri Baraka practically lived <laughs> in the cafe so thinking about those connections and thinking about kind of just like uh the aesthetic too like there's lois and pedro and everyone's in conversation with the kind of theoretical aesthetical aesthetic things that they're the the african-americans have been doing for centuries they're also tapping into that as well i don't know so in that sense that's why i'm i'm thinking like It needs to have a, not a shift, but heavy focus needs to look at how blacky black, black (laughs) the cafe and the artists are. Because literally the central to the Boricua aesthetic is Yoruba cultural practices. And one of the reasons why Lois really got involved with the cafe, because she is from the Caribbean, was the drummings, the Mm tambores. And she say her mother was an Obeah woman. And those... Things from West Africa, those West African traditions, the oral tradition is so ingrained within the poetics and the and the performance and everything aspect of it. I I mean, people are doing work on that, but I think that should be like, let's start there first. And then it, I think it'd be more interesting f- And in that lens. Uh, if we start from it being something that was tremendously uh, ingrained within and Afrocentricity, and then we can include it. I don't think any of this diminishes Latinx anything. I think it only enriches.
1: You're talking about kind of going through these archives with Lois and looking for someone to sell the archives to Right. That, that was something you had mentioned earlier on mm. is like uh, finding a buyer for the, the archives. Yes. Yeah. So what future do you see for the archives that you're exploring right now?
2: Oh, well, this specific one, Lois is really interested in um, it being possibly purchased by the Schomburg. <laughs> but she wants to have it expanded. So I'm working with her doing like oral histories of people because a lot of the people who were, part of the founding and initiated the cafe. They're old, they're elderly, they're ill. Um, we are doing work last minute, literally. We're like, it's, it's the, there's a um, urgency, a sense of urgency um, in the work we do. But part of Lois's, specifically for this specific archive that I'm working with, it's realizing that it has to continue to expand and Archives can't be totally complete. There will always be gaps in them. Um, but part of what she wants to do is have some sort of someone, someone rich. If there, if someone's listening, <laughs> was rich. Um, kind of give compensation for those who want to include within the archive. So, you know, there are some people who were poets um, and artists who were involved with the cafe who saved their papers. That's important. I always think like these archives should be in conversation with each other and someone should have like millions or billions of dollars to like do like this really cool digital archive project that like just scans or like puts conversations with like one archive with another I would say for example Miguel Alguerring's archive (sighs) there are no correspondences (laughs) in that archive Mm -hmm. and and if they are they're not they don't speak to the life he had like you ran this cafe you were a Shakespearean scholar and professor and you wrote and published five six books of uh, poetry you had these conversations so uh, you had you, you had to have written to people. You were in conversations with whatever. But, you know, there's also, like, drama around that the acquisition of that archive. But in any event, I know for certain that there are other Lower East Side poets who mm-hmm. have letters of Miguel's. Just as an example, if, like, someone could, like, you know, scan those and make that. So if you click on, like, the uh, New York Poets Cafe archive click and it like takes you to another institution but you know i'm just being real utopian and ridiculous that's with that all right
1: <laughs> that's all right but that this would be a space for that
2: that would be like a really great way of thinking about but you know institutions have their own gatekeeping, and they're like well no we we have the intellectual property of this and then so i know it's all about making money and money and who's in control of specific histories narratives etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think that for me would be like a really wonderful thing in terms of i um, thinking of expanding um, the archive. Yeah, like, I, I think just to have those people include that in there and have it have it expanded in that sense that it's always growing. Because mm-hmm. just because the cafe was started out of Miguel's apartment and if it continues to, if, if we're here in the next 25, 50 years because of global warming, <laughs> Um <laughs> if that building doesn't exist doesn't mean that the work and memory of the people who did that work there should no longer exist right so preserving that and you know we won't get everyone with our oral histories but people should be like hey i was part of this and it needs to be contributed because that's the like part of the work of undoing archives with a capital a and history that's responsible for the violence the colonial violence that you know all of our. That's responsible for all of our turmoil.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I want I want to go back to is uh, earlier you were talking about the the lost and found fellows and archival research projects that you're working on, and how one of them was centered around Lois in particular. Is there anything else that you can tell us about that program, that the projects in general, and sort of your experience with that?
2: So I guess I can. I think, like, thinking about, I think it was my first year of the semester and realizing, like, oh, I knew these spaces, academia and higher ed, were very white, but I didn't think how bad it would be. (laughs) And then Miguel Algarín died. And then, I mean, I didn't come in as a New Yurican scholar or a poetic scholar. I came in as an Americanist, a Caribbeanist. Um, just studying African American and queer American artists of African and Caribbean descent uh, work. And then he died, and then I was told I was being ridiculous, but I was like, well, the New York Times took too long to print his obituary. And they were like, it takes a while. I was like, mm. usually, like when um, Sidney Poitier died, immediately he had the, 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 um, not to like say that anyone's life is worth more than another, but just as one of my thinking, um, Miguel was huge in our community. And so in any event, Amiel uh, Alcalay at the, the uh, Graduate Center, who runs Lost and Found, sent this beautiful email through the listserv uh, commemorating and memorializing Miguel. And I got in touch and I just thanked him for it. And then he was like, wait, do you want to work? <laughs> The last one of the last surviving founders. And I was like, sure. And so that was November 30th, 2020, when Miguel died. So March of 2021, I started working with Lois at the height of the pandemic. We were just having Zooms and being on the phone, and we got to know each other. And one of the things that Lois had said to me was, I want to learn from you, and you learn from me. And so we we established this kind of relationship where trust and respect was built and so i don't really so i stayed in i was in her home i think for a whole year and her archive is it's in the living room i never looked in any of the boxes so she was just talking to me i was learning she's giving me her side of the story i was recording and learning things she'll share some she has an extensive library um miguel getting had a library um in his home but at the like, he got sick towards the end of his life, and a lot of his papers were just destroyed or lost. He had given her, gifted her a couple of his books, so she has a really extensive library in her house. And so she's like, "You can read these stuff here; they never leave." Yeah. <laughs> um, and so just looking at that work uh, and getting to know her as an artist and as a person, and then her sharing, eventually after like a like a year, we went through her boxes, and I understood it. I think if i had gone in before then i wouldn't have understood the how tremendous and valuable this work was so she kind of gave me a lay of the land um and if you meet lois she is the archive she's a library she'll just start naming people and i'm like i don't know who you're talking about Mm -hmm. (laughs) but eventually you start it starts to stick. And at this point, I can kind of finish her sentences when she tells the story.
1: <laughs> so it sounds like, you know, getting involved with this project, you know, after reaching out, sort of that is the catalyst for where you are today with your archival work. And And I love the way you explain it as a developing relationship. You know, there was community, communication, trust, and all of these things were built. And now it's like you weren't just going in there to take and i think mm-hmm. it sounds very much like she perceived that in you and and that's part of what established yeah. that trust so it's- i'm glad you had that that sort of inlet to 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 get to seeing and engaging with those archives that you might not have had otherwise yeah
2: and it's i think the level of care and i think that's like now you know going to all these conferences as panels people are like there must be more care it's true more level in care and love and and respect for people i think that lois isn't uh she always hates being an object of inquiry i'm like get over (laughs) it, a little bit but on some level, um, she, what, her, what she did, her work, it needs to be studied. She just feels weird about that. Mm-hmm. I kind of get it. Um, but thinking about the archive in itself, and I wouldn't have valued the kinds of relationships I discovered in the archive and her archival material if I had not established that relationship with her firsthand. So, for example, she has Tony Gleaton, um, who's a photographer I mentioned earlier. He had her, um, she wrote an essay for the opening of one of his exhibitions. And it's like, what? <laughs> um, and, and he gifted her some of the, the pictures, some of his pictures. So she has that in her archive. And making that connection between her, the cafe, and this man who's, wait, he's not even on the east coast mm-hmm. um uh thinking about arlene gottfried who isn't she isn't boricua she isn't latina a jewish woman who is the brother of gilbert gottfried who played iago in the latin <laughs> the young Aladdin. among
1: other things yeah i, remember, I think that's what people. <laughs> your <remember> millennial <laughs> is showing <laughs>
2: people really remember him for um but she had documented um the the African American and Latino diaspora in New York City. So, in her work, and Lois wrote a poem for her, and it's featured in um, Arlene's book, um, uh, "Fireworks and Gucci and Gucci and Fritos." I think that's the name of the book. In any event, like those are examples. And then uh, another that I'm just so super excited about, um, just discovering Marcel Christian, who was uh, one of the founders, uh, a godfather of the. Um, New York City ballroom scene. Mm. And so he had done some costume designs for the cafes theater uh, a few uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. He passed away, but he had left uh, he had trusted Lois with his unpublished manuscript. And so she has that in her archive. So some of the, these are some of the things I'm highlighting in these Lost and Founds. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about the different connections that Lois has, these relationships Lois has just established, being in this space and being an artist and her engagement with other people. I mean, and, and Marcel, for me, is one of the queer people involved with the cafe that his story, I think, has been totally erased and forgotten um, and he was so super um, vital to the, a part of the cafe's history.
1: I just i'm I'm creating a visual in my mind. you know, everything is connected, but it also because these branches and these roots are are kind of being exposed and growing now that that new things are starting to emerge from them, right? You're saying some of these individuals, you know, have, been erased, and and now is the time to bring bring them back and and bring attention to them. Right?
2: It's it's only I think because no one has paid attention to Lois, <laughs>
1: <laughs> or really fair.
2: listened to her, or sat down or taking her. I mean, people have like you walk in the street with Lois, and every, like in Lower East Side for example, and everybody who's anybody will stop her because they know who she is. Um, but I think in terms of the Academy, no, and I think that's it's the the scholarship. Not that it's lacking. I think the scholarship is wonderful, but I think it it can be enriched by having a discussion with Lois and, and an interaction with her and her archive and her work because it's. I'm finding all of these uh, interesting connections that had never been made before that will just make the the scholarship now more enriching.
1: Joseph, thank you so much for being here with us today. We like. I think this has been really helpful and will be helpful for our students in terms of understanding what archives are, how they work, and and this particular archive and what experiences you can encounter, you know, based on your connections and, and trying to dig into your community. But is there anything else that you would like to share with us before we wrap up? Anything that maybe we missed, didn't ask about, or even just where people might be able to get in contact with you?
2: Well, in working with Lois's um, archive and doing this, these lost and founds. I'm also doing a lost and found on Miguel Algarín's unpublished manuscript, "Dirty Beauty," um, which is over a thousand pages.
1: have oh. <laughs> to go
2: through that. I've gone through, and that's also important. We're also trying to get that work published. And yeah, I just think like a lot of this work. There's a lot of Unpublished manuscripts by the founders. Rojo knows, because <laughs> he works with Pedro Pietri's papers. Um, There's just so, and we and Lois has a lot of Pedro's pamphlets and stuff. It's just a lot of work that has been just sitting in boxes, that needs to not sit in boxes anymore. I think that because we are in New York City, we don't, I never learned anything about the New and Poets Cafe or any kind of New York or Puerto Rican art. Um, and I think the value of the work I'm doing is pushing that into into people learning it. Um, and when you did hear about it, it was like, well, that's ghetto, that's negative. And it's like, wait, wow, these people, one, we're not. I mean, they're from the street, they could be ghetto, but. Ghetto people could be (laughs) avant-garde. And the work was avant-garde. It was experimental. It was, these people were well-read, well-read. And they did this work that was phenomenal and it needs to be more, it needs to be studied more. Their work needs to be published. And I think for me on my end, that's the one goal that I want to do. (laughs) The work that's really important to me is the actual book That needs to be published, that thing, that object that can be of inquiry and study is really valuable to me. So, yeah, that's the thing I didn't say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, you can, like, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm Joseph A. Caceres. And then I have a website, josephacaceres.com. So, yeah. (laughs) Muchas gracias, Joseph. Thank you.
1: Yes, thank you.
0: So, Rebecca, what do you think about the conversation with Joseph? I
1: I really liked hearing about his work in general, but with Lois in particular, because his experiences with her and her archives really reflect the idea that what an archive is, is complicated, right? It's not just one thing. It could be papers or conversations, right? He mentioned sitting down and just talking to her and listening and recording what she was saying, what she remembers. Um, but also, you know, in the case of Lois's collection in particular, it can be hundreds of boxes of just like, uh, basically treasure to, to sort of have to sort through.
0: Yeah, I appreciated thinking with Joseph about the silences in the archive and the system of oppressions behind those silences. For instance, um, uh violence mm-hmm. and how we should aim for an expansive understanding of what an archive can be beyond its institutional setting or reductive notions of who belongs in it.
1: Yeah, and I think maybe now we should talk about our own experiences with the archives, you know, what our experiences in archival situations or archival research has been like. So I'm going to talk about my experience with the, the Cuban Heritage Collection at the University of Miami uh, in Florida. And I've been there several times, twice on my own, and once when I received the Goiseta Foundation's Graduate Research Fellowship, which was fantastic because it gave me funding to be there for a whole month doing research on a daily basis. Honestly, it was a phenomenal opportunity, and it exposed me to research that I honestly couldn't find anywhere else. You know, sometimes it's easy to default your research to just Googling it, but once you've had an archival experience, I think it really changes your perspective, or at least it did for me. Um, you know, I just there's so much more personal material that you have access to than when you're just scrolling online, right? But there are often rules about archives. You know, at the CHC, we could use our computers and we could take pictures of most of the documents as long as it was for our personal research, right? Some collections did have restrictions, but they were marked. They're really good at at cataloging their archives at the CHC. Uh, I could read and request items to study in the archival room at the library. But certainly, unlike a regular library, you can't just take this material home. (laughs) Yeah. What about you? What's your experience been like with archives?
0: Yeah, so uh, since uh, 2017, I have been visiting and doing research on and off at the Center for Puerto Rican Studies Archive at Hunter College. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, the centro is dedicated to collecting uh, documents and objects connected to diasporic writers, political figures, and organizations. Yeah, Uh, but in particular, I have been uh, joyfully exploring the Pedro Pietri papers. These are like like seventy or eighty boxes by now. (laughs) Yeah, it keeps growing. Yeah, so the Pedro Pietri papers, I have been like uh, uh, working and reading and investigating it, and it's definitely uh, I have noticed that this is definitely an indispensable source to see the scope of this New York artist's interdisciplinary work. Mainly because most of his production remains unpublished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except for a general anthology uh, published by City Lights, his published books are out of print. Right now, so the archive is essential to learn about him.
1: Yeah, Yeah. it's the only place you can get his stuff, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Precisely. Pietri also has a lot of work in the archives connected to artifacts. Uh, So it's not only papers, right? So uh, there's a lot of materials uh, connected to his performances and gallery presentations. And I will argue that to understand the complexity of his work, you need to be in contact with these objects. Yeah. At the Central Archive, you can take pictures, as you mentioned, of documents and objects for your research. Still, as you mentioned, uh, you cannot put this information in the open on social media or in publications without the different states permissions.
1: Yeah. Very fair. Very fair. So we wanted to recommend a few archives that we have engaged with. And uh, because many of our listeners are from the New York area, we thought we'd start with some archives here in New York City that, students or other researchers could engage with. First, we have the Schomburg Center, uh, which is part of the New York Public Library that's up in Harlem. And they put on fantastic events, but they also have a lot of great archival research to, to dig into. Then there's the New York Public Library for Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. I know I do a lot of research with theater and, and they house a lot of Latine theater collections there. Of course um and this is true for people often come to this next one for uh as as tourists but it it's actually a very in-depth library has a a good number of of collections here as well, the New York Public Library Stephen A. Schwarzman building, you know, that's the one with the lions. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And you mentioned the the Centro for Puerto Rican studies at Mm -hmm. Hunter College, but there is also the Dominican archives which is housed at the City College of New York.
0: Yeah, so beyond uh, New York, uh, uh, we can mention, for example, the Cuban Heritage Collection at the University of Miami in Florida. El Archivo Histórico de Puerto Rico, which uh, is a great place to research on slave Africans and Afro-descendants in Puerto Rico during the colonial period under the Spanish Empire. Uh, I'm actually currently using some documents uh, from this collection about Cimarrones, Maroons, to write a poetry collection.
1: Wow, all right, we're looking forward to that. (laughs) But for those of you who are either not in New York or might have trouble getting to some of these other archives, There are a number of Latin American studies archives online and just a couple that I've engaged in is the Latin American comics archive, which is housed at Carnegie Mellon. But again, it's a digital archive and the Cuban theater digital archive, which uh, is also part of University of Miami, but uh, an online digital archive.
0: Also, Centro has some of the materials from the archives are digitalized and you can like have access to them online. Yeah, most archives are doing that type of work these days.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. That's the kind of world we live in and it also it opens up access to these materials while maintaining or while, while continuing to preserve the physical artifacts themselves.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we sign off, we want to share some feedback comments we got from listener on our uh, previous episode. Yeah, on Helen Ceballos, la entrevista con Helen. The first one is from Natalie Bisono on the notion of performing citizenship in Helen Ceballos' work, in a specific, uh, her text performance, uh, gallery, Mm -hmm. uh, installation, uh, Ceresas por Papeles. So Natalie says... Performing citizenship can also be known as a skill one must acquire to survive and blend into the crowd of a new country. Ceballos first had to perform when she arrived in Puerto Rico. Her family would stay there and secure her state on the island. Meanwhile, they were going to, quote-unquote, rent the U.S.-American citizenship of a Puerto Rican girl. The requirements for this documentation pushed Ceballos to assimilate Puerto Rican qualities. Once older, Ceballos gained experience performing in theater and she related these uh, experiences to her immigration sales. Performing citizenship wherever she went required the erasure or secrecy of her native background to fully acquire the essence of the people from the host country so that she could pass by unnoticed and unbothered, blend into the crowd as best as possible while doing all sorts of odd jobs. An example will be Ceballos' time in Argentina, where she was advised to speak in the local language, likely to accommodate Argentinians' used to their accent. If you speak how you speak, no one is going to understand you. You have to camouflage. This word, camouflage, accurately describes Ceballos' efforts throughout her life, Most immigrants know the need to camouflage blending in with their surroundings as chameleons do in self-defense to avoid trouble when they're only working on having a better life than the one available back in their native land.
1: Yeah, we have a second comment from Rosari Perez on the topic of women's empowerment in Helen Ceballos' work. She says, throughout her piece, Helen Ceballos shares some of the intergenerational knowledge she has gained from women in her family. As Ceballos mentioned during class, uh, many of her memories are unclear and there are gaps within them. To fill in those gaps, she has had conversations with the women in her family that have helped her understand more. The process of acquiring this knowledge makes the piece not only about Ceballos, but also about all the women in her family. She shares different anecdotes her mother recites in a specific section. These are dichos in Spanish and are often passed down from generation to generation. These dichos are just another form of knowledge passed down by the women in Ceballos' family, returning to the grandmother she never met. Furthermore, this passing down of knowledge reflects the theme of women's empowerment. Throughout her piece, Ceballos has highlighted her experiences and struggles and those of her mother and aunt. Their stories show that one generation can overcome hardships and can empower the next by sharing their experiences.
0: Thanks for those messages, uh, Rosary and Natalie. We appreciate your comments. And remember, you too, uh, our audience uh, listeners, you can share your thoughts with us. You can always reach out to us on social media or by email. Uh, so follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagrams at LatinExhibitions. Our email address is latinexhibitions at gmail.com.
1: Be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on both Apple and Spotify. It really helps us get more listeners.
0: Estamos a la escucha. Que disfruten el verano.
1: Dale. Until next season.